welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With us today is Durley Gutierrez, head of security at 1010 Data, and we're going to talk about the journey to passwordless and how realistic it really is. Durley, thanks for coming on down to the ranch. Thanks, Alan. As always, it's a pleasure. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity, until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. So, Durley, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into cyber and a little bit about your day job? I started off with a similar route to a lot of people who got into cyber in the early 2000s, was in the military, not initially in IT or cybersecurity, did do security and law enforcement for the Air Force. But I always uh, played around with IT, built people's computers for them, did all the IT networking and endpoint security for my unit. And eventually I fell in love with it, got a couple of certs and degrees and made my way into telecommunications and the army and then into the private sector. Fell in love with different aspects of IT and cyber and became a, a security architect when cloud became a big deal. And eventually made my way to the strategic level where I'm now head of security for 1010 Data. Additionally, my day-to-day is a really a little bit of everything, at, at least at the strategic level. I have to communicate a lot with senior management about uh, the risk and business liability. And, and then I got to work hand-in-hand with the tactical level people, the network engineers and system administrators, and try to provide that guidance on what's best practices and how to apply that within the company. Now, Durley, I know you personally, and I know what you're not sharing with folks is that you've really internalized this passion of ours in this field to be the protectors and defenders. I know that you take that part of your job very seriously as well. So let's get started with a little bit about passwords and why we want to go passwordless. I'm going to quote something here from the Verizon Data Breach Report of uh, 2017. I know that's a little bit older one, but it was the first stat I could grab on this. They said 81% of hacking-related breaches used either weak or stolen passwords. 81%. So you can see where the desire for passwordless comes from. You think that 81% is still holding firm today? Oh, absolutely. I think every major hack you see in the newspaper on the news is pretty much related to some kind of password compromise in some way, shape, or form. However, it's not always due to the weakness of the password. Sometimes they just acquired it through a key logger and some other means. Yeah, phishing and whatever else it might be. So, all right, let's talk a little bit then about passwords. Before we get into password less, I thought it was important that we cover the NIST guidance, uh, the newest guidance from 2020. And I'm talking specifically about NIST SP800-63B. They basically outline three authenticator assurance levels, one through three, and they get progressively more uh, complex. And by the time you get to three, they're talking about a very high confidence factor, and they're talking about proof of possession of a key through a cryptographic protocol, 
Requires a hard-based authenticator and an authenticator that provides verifier impersonation resistance. The same device could fulfill both. In order to authenticate, claimants are required to prove possession and control of two distinct authentication factors through secure authentication protocols. And obviously with NIST, you're looking at things like the DOD. Um, what, what replaced the CAC cards? I know they don't call them CAC anymore. There's a new card for DOD. Today, they're still using CAC. They just have multiple certs on them. Um, gotcha. It's basically an ID card with some like a YubiKey hardware token built into it. Exactly. Cryptographically controlled key built into the card itself. So that's kind of covering your your number three there, your layer three from the NIST guidance. But the other piece, you know, it's the old something you have and something you know, right? And I think historically, even with a CAC card, you're still entering a password or you're still entering a PIN. What's the, what's the CAC technique? The CAC would be a PIN. So you're still using something you know and something you have. However, coming out of the DoD, I'm a big NIST fan, uh, but this is one of the rare areas I, I would disagree, and I rarely agree with vendors. A while back, vendors came out with some additional methods, right? They also have something only you can do, maybe like a mm -hmm. signature or, or the way you hit the keys on the keyboard, keystrokes. Yep. Uh, there's also somewhere you are because a lot of the vendors came out with the geolocation verification, geofencing. Right. You know, are you authenticating in New York and then two hours later, now you're in Singapore, etc. Right. Yeah. And for a while, I know ISC squared adopted that as well. It was in the books, whether or not today they're still in there. Um, but I've actually expanded my personal best practice to those five. Yeah. And then there's, there's also something you are right. There's straight up biometrics, you know, retina scans, fingerprints, uh, facial recognition, etc. Absolutely. But that that's in the original three. I think those have been around for like 20, 30 yeah. plus years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The something you are, something you know would be pin or password and, and something you have would be like a hard token. Yep. And, and there's one thing I wanted to point out. A lot of folks don't necessarily know this, but when we talk about pins with things like uh, cat cards or, you know, whatever, Windows Hello for Business or one of these other things, the big difference between a pin and a password, obviously you're memorizing it, you're punching it in. And in the case of Windows Hello for Business, they allow your pin to be anything, uh, any character. So effectively it is a password because a, a numeric pin obviously is less secure than a real password, but it's still called a pin for a very specific reason. It works just like the pin on your debit card. In other words, it is stored local to the device and it is never transmitted or authenticated against the back end. So a password goes up against the server, is transmitted down the wire, receives an authentication back, and then you move on. There's a chance there for interception, right? With a pin, it's 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 strictly communicating with the local device. And so even though it's a something you know and it's a memorized thing you're typing in, it's it's a secret, it is it is different at least in terms of transmission, right? And I think it's always important to point that one out. Absolutely. And this is a good segue into something I wanted to talk about, right? Also, reliability and insurance. So reliability. In, in that scenario, Windows Hello, how often does the sensor on your computer that's reading your fingerprint for that biometrics for Windows Hello working? How often is the camera working? And then the insurance level is how often is that password when it scans your, your fingerprint? What percentage of a match does it need to be? Is it 10%? or is it 99.9%, right? That determines the assurance level. So with Windows Hello, I find that I personally have to still use my password multiple times a day. So the reliability is very low. Now the, the assurance, I have high trust in it. I haven't actually looked at the specs. I'm not sure what it's tweaked to. I'm sure on the back end in Microsoft, they determine that. But in that scenario, 
I still use my password because I just personally don't want to have to memorize a password in the pin. I intentionally set the pin and forget it. And at the end of the day, it's that same password to log into Microsoft.com to look at your account. You still need the password. It doesn't give you the option for the pin uh, because it's it's used locally. So at the end of the day, I think whether you're using any of the, the methods, right? Something you are, something you know, they all you all want them to have high reliability, high assurance. And if you want to get rid of passwords completely, they're going to have to work on that reliability to where it is consistently working to where maybe there's failures once a year or longer, right? The equivalent of the likelihood of your keyboard from failing so you couldn't enter your password, that's where the reliability needs to be on the camera and the fingerprint reader as well. The reliability thing is definitely a piece there. So the Cybersecurity Insiders is a group that put together the 2021 The State of Passwordless Security Report. And one of the things they talk about, to your point, is, you know, how does this all work and what are the desires and what are the goals with a passwordless solution? And they did a survey of their their audience, and I, I don't know how large their audience was. I'd have to dig. But, but you know, they, they seem to have some pretty comprehensive stats throughout the report. What factors are the most important in choosing your passwordless solution? 76% said ease of use, 76% ease of integration, 66% cost, 50% time to deploy, and 45% human resource intensity to deploy and manage. So a lot of folks looking for ease of use and ease of integration, to your point, and I think that a lot of these solutions aren't really there yet. Um, maybe the fingerprint, to your point, doesn't scan. You end up having to use the password anyway, or maybe you get a reprompt and there's some sort of a token shift, or, you know, whatever might happen there. Ease of integration and ease of use are key factors. There's another thing that came out of the study, though, that I found to be very interesting because we talked about, you know, the difference between PIN and password. But the reality is, you know, these quote-unquote passwordless solutions still end up requiring a password or other shared secret like OTP and SMS code and email, uh, PIN. The survey said uh, how many of your solutions still use a shared secret of some kind, and 61% of respondents said yes. Only 17% said no, and 22% were unsure. So 61% of people on their quote-unquote passwordless journey are still using shared secrets of some kind. And I think this ties into what you were talking about. There's other factors and variables besides ease of use that would cause you to have to use that shared secret. And I think TOTP, uh, you know, one-time passwords, time-sensitive. What other shared secret stuff have you seen with supposedly passwordless uh, implementations? I think there's two sides to this as well, right? If we're talking more about the corporate world versus personal, what I've seen today really is, is for how passwordless is really being used is it's not really true passwordless. What they're doing is they're, they're defaulting to hard token and then the MFA push with a combination of geolocation. So they still have three factors, which is true MFA, but they will use the password as a backup, as a fourth factor. That's a default. I think at the end of the day, the password or at least pins, the something you know it is going to be used as a as a backup until that reliability factor is there. And right. again, not you true passwordless would also have to be applied everywhere. There's all these systems that aren't going to be integrated into your Active Directory and your SSO that you still may have to use passwords, and therefore you're going to have to have password best practices and policies within that corporation. At the end of the day, regardless of, of what authentication method you're using, right? The, at the biggest weakness I see is the lack of RBAC and PAM and system-to-system communication. A lot of people think RBAC only applies to end users and how the end users are accessing 
whatever it is they need to access, right? A service or a network. But that also applies to system communication. So theoretically, if you had good RBAC, you had good system-to-system authentication, you had a decent PAM for those systems that have to have a shared account or legacy that only have, you know, an admin user uh, credential and, and password, whether you're using a password or a PIN, regardless of what you're using to authenticate, the security is going to go much higher. A lot of these cases where people are getting breached by weak passwords, they get their password captured. The additional factor is, is that they had privileges and access to things that they shouldn't have or the endpoints that they used, which just made the, the issue worse. The new NIST guidance also says that you don't need to uh, provide uh, users with password resense as frequently. It doesn't stipulate a specific date, which is what I expected. I thought maybe they were extended to a year or two. It just leaves it open uh, to not well, having well, to have a frequent password reset at all. Yeah, it's not wide open because what they do say is whenever there's a suspected compromise change, right? So there's no change exactly. on a set time period. To your point, there's no set time period at all. They don't say six yes. months, one year, two years. Don't do it unless there's a suspected reason to do it. And that's some interesting guidance. But you threw a bunch of stuff on the table just then with that statement because the first thing I'm thinking about when you talk about, yeah, when you talk about system-to-system communication, PAM, and, and some of these other factors, there's also that identity and access management piece behind yeah. the scenes, right? Mm-hmm. If you are going to go passwordless and you're going to have these MFA tokens and whatever else you're using authenticate without a centralized identity and access management, you're having to go up against every individual thing. And so getting a centralized solution that speaks true passwordless MFA is is key, right? You've got to have that front-end interface of, of unified and single identity to reach out to the different things. And that brings up the other piece of what you talked about, legacy systems. Uh, I was specifically looking at it, did some research just out of curiosity. I was looking at Radius. Everyone knows Radius authentication, right? It's been around forever. Yeah. How do we do passwordless with Radius? And I started looking and I found literally three different companies that were all offering three completely different solutions for Radius. And we had a company that was using emails with a magic link back to, you know, pushes can be hacked, especially email pushes. Another one was using server certificate validation, basically taking advantage of the server certs, but associating them with the endpoints individually. So basically leveraging server certs for what they weren't intended to be, but using them for every single communication. And then another one was using a PAM style approach where you've got a a front end to, to get into the PAM and then PAM is doing the server cert exchange on the back end. So... That's a huge factor in all this. Legacy is a huge factor because it's not just radius. There's there's a million and one other authentication methods and there's individual systems that aren't even on centralized identity. So I think that has to be considered as well whenever we talk about a valid passwordless solution is how many legacy entities on the network are going to never work with passwordless. Yeah, and, and you're going to see a lot of these companies come out with these ways to use passwordless as a marketing tool. You know, for example, I took a look at some of these companies as well. The link, you know, sends you a link, you know, for your customers to access to their email. Well, you're basically outsourced a password to that user's email. They still yep. need a password to access the email to get to the link. So there's still a password involved. You're just not having a password for your specific access. Yep. Uh, the cert, the cert authentication, I would have to dive deeper into that. It sounds great in theory, but it's still, it sounds like one factor and not multi-factor. So there could be a way to somehow capture that or get past it that I would probably want to have high insurance by having more than one factor. Again, I would have to dive in deeper into that. And and PAM's been around for a while. It's basically a good man in the middle where you're just accessing one system while that system accesses the other on your behalf. 
So you still want to make sure that in order to access the PAM system, you still got good multi-factor, you got good all basic RBAC, system system communications, everything I mentioned. So that brings me back full circle to the NIST guidance, right? I, I didn't feel comfortable with their guidance where they said no more frequent password resets. You are They are assuming that you're doing RBAC right and system to system communication right and all the basics right, which a lot of companies, especially those small to mid-sized companies that, that aren't big global blanks, they, that don't have people reviewing all day long, you know, security groups, it's really difficult and challenging for small to mid-sized companies to do RBAC and PAM and system to system communication because it requires a lot of hygiene all day, every day, week by week. And because of that, when one user's credentials, especially the right one, gets captured, the hacker now has the keys to the kingdom. And, and that's right. really the true problem. Any passwordless solution, if your RBAC is jacked up, if your segregation of duties is jacked up, if, if you've got a failure of all the other controls, exactly. even passwordless can still get you in trouble. And, and you mentioned uh, as well push notifications, and I thought this was interesting. This is from the same survey report here. Push attacks. One in 10 survey respondents encountered push attacks, while nine in 10 continue to combat phishing attacks on a regular basis. So that push is, is a point of compromise, be it SMS, email, or whatever. You mentioned email, but even, you know, SIM duplication and forgery and, you know, you can intercept SMSs and even, even pushes to OTP apps. If it's not generating the protocol, sometimes they receive the push and you just check the box, yes, indeedy, that was me. That can also be faked and intercepted as well. So it's not just about the big picture controls. It's even about when these pushes are used. Those are vulnerable as well. Yeah. It's it's a big mess. So so getting to true passwordless though, like to me, a true passwordless solution is two factors or more, none of which is a shared secret, right? So now we're talking about something like a hardware token plus a biometric, or we're talking, um, you know, a hardware token plus I don't know what else. I can break down my vision. I I think in the next, I don't know if it's going to happen in ten years or thirty years, but. I think true password is going to look like this, at least in the corporate level. All these providers that are providing you with your SSO and, and your portal login that also provides you with the, the soft token app, I think eventually the reliability is going to be high and insurance is going to be high enough to where you could get rid of passwords. You would push that token on your phone and then maybe have like a hard key connected into the computer. And that's why they're all coming out with an agent for Windows, Mac, all the different server versions. And basically that agent acts as an integration into the operating system to where you can also use your MFA capabilities to access the endpoint. So once that is all done and it's it's reached a high level of liability and assurance, I, I can see moving away completely from passwords or pins and just having a hard token in your phone in order to uh, authenticate. And again, you're still using multiple factors. Now you're not using, ideally in the DOD and, and NIST, they want you to use different identification methods. You're still kind of using something you have twice because you have a hard token and you have your phone. But I think the combination of, of physically pushing, physically being at the inbox and having that geolocation will have such high insurance levels eventually that it will be good enough. So you're, you're not including biometric in there, I notice, in, in your vision. Um, you're going with two tokens, including the push. And as we talked about, pushes could, in theory, be jacked. 
I'm wondering about biometric as, uh, you know, you mentioned reliability at the beginning of the show. And yes, sometimes it fails. I've had fingerprint readers tell me 15 times in a row they couldn't read my fingerprint, you know, and you get other, you know, other other messed up scenarios like that. But if the pushes can be intercepted and if we can overcome the usability and, and consistency and reliability of the biometrics, wouldn't a hard token plus biometric be the safest oh, if you're only going to get two factors? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to the corporation of what they f- what they trust, right? I, all these portal providers, these SSOs portal providers, um, they all give you multiple options, which is what I love about them. You can make it as complex or simple as want as you want, and depending on the phone, you can integrate the biometrics uh, features into that authentication method. Uh, a lot of the new laptops and stuff that are coming out do have fingerprint readers and cameras, right, already integrated into them. What do you do when you get to a server, though, in the in the DC? Yeah. Right. Are you going to be able to use your phone or the signals getting cut off, right? You need to have some kind of redundancy. But I definitely think that the soft token app and features on the phone are going to be combined with some other identification methods. And that, again, the reliability and the insurance is going to be there to where you can comfortably say that we're eliminating passwords across the board or pins. Yeah, and I'm sitting here looking at my phone as you say that, and I'm realizing I have five separate TOTP apps <laughs> exactly. on my phone. Yeah, and I'm paranoid. I'm paranoid to the point where I'll use them, but I will only use them in order with the combination of a hard token. So one thing I wanted to point out, and I know we've been talking largely about the corporate landscape and the corporate perspective, or at least you know the enterprise, organizational, whatever you want to call it, governments and, and nonprofits and such um, matter too. But let's shift focus to the personal side. I thought this was very interesting. When we talk about the phones having these TOTP pushes, one-time codes, all the various things, biometrics, fingerprints, and face scans, there was a very interesting precedent set in, I think it was 2018, where a guy got busted by the feds. And when the feds raided his place, it was a, unfortunately, it was a child you know, child pornography thing. So it was, it, was a, it was a bad situation, but they wanted access to his phone. They wanted to see his phone and his phone had been set up for facial recognition. Ordinarily, the cops require a warrant to get into your phone. If your phone is password protected, they've got to get a warrant to, to get in there. They literally just picked up his phone, aimed it at his face, unlocked it, dove in and, and started digging around. Now, obviously in the case of a child pornographer, I'm like, good, bust the guy. But the precedence of no warrant accessing the phone because biometrics were used instead of a password, I thought was very scary. And it hasn't gone to the Supreme Court yet, this this particular case and the particular implications of it. But there's a lot of legal hubbub now. There's a lot of folks uh, at the federal level and, and other levels, you know, discussing and talking about this. EFF has weighed in and everybody else. This idea that biometrics make it very easy to open your phone because if someone can just aim your, you know, your phone at your face or, or, you know, take a dead body's finger and swipe it on a fingerprint reader. I mean, there's a million and one ways that what used to be password protected warrant required access can suddenly be because of biometrics easy. And I just thought that was a very interesting sidebar as we talk about the journey to password list. The fact that, uh, I mean, I'm picturing the mafia cutting your finger off or, uh, you know, we, yeah. I think it was Blade Runner where they had the, uh, the eyeball in a bag for the retina scan. You know, yeah. you shift the locus of where the security is to the human when you put biometrics in, in the play. Yeah. So I think we can break this down into two parts. Like how do you protect what's on your phone went past the initial authentication to get to the desktop of the phone, right? So to speak. So what I do is if you're going to use a password as a backup in the fingerprint reader, Anything that you have within your phone, 
you should have a different authentication method, right? Maybe it's a pin to your bank. Don't use the fingerprint also as the authentication to your bank app, right? Use a pin, use a different password. Have a folder with, you know, a different password or pin access. Now, as far as like the legal ramifications to all this new technology and, and bypassing it or not needing to get a warrant in order to get to it, coming out of law enforcement in the military, they harp on the importance of people's rights and the importance of having a, a warrant. And, and I, it makes me really uncomfortable that they're able to do this. And I really hope that the Supreme Court stands up and says that, hey, you're violating this individual's rights. Now, they always use the worst case scenario, right? In this scenario, it's a pedophile. You know, they're trying to use that as a justification. But you don't, what most people don't understand is they're setting a precedent if yeah. it is allowed. And Snowden said it best. In the old days, your home was your castle. Today, your phone is your castle. Your phone has your whole world. And if if anyone can use investigating you without a warrant as a justification in order to access your phone, you're giving them access pretty much to your whole world today. And circling back to the corporate side, I think you, you've already given us your vision of what it could look like down the road. We talked about the fact that push attacks are a thing today, but I thought this was interesting. This was the last uh, survey that I wanted to bring up from that study. What passwordless technologies does your organization provide today? This is defined as authentication in which the user is required to provide a username, but not a password to gain access. Choose all that apply. 48% said none. We don't have any passwordless technology deployed. So as we talk about this journey, 48% of us still aren't even there. 36% said they use a smartphone as a FIDO token. And of course, we talked about, you know, that that's ultimately still a shared secret. 17% um, said hardware security key where no password is required, like a, you know, YubiKey, Google uh, Titan, or a smart card, cat card, whatever it might be. 17% said they use built-in authenticators like Windows Hello. Um, so I found that to be very interesting. We, we, we talk about the difficulty of the journey. We talk about the fact that a lot of passwordless is, in fact, still shared secrets. And then we've got 48% of us admitting flat out that we're not there. So what do you think? How long before we get there? I wonder who they interviewed for that. Is it security professionals or just the average guy in the average corporation, right? Because a lot of these corporations are using Okta or Ping ID or Centrify or one of their competitors. And they all have the option to just do push with no password. And if you have really good RBAC, could you just use the push and no password to get to the portal or to get to things that are very low risk? Absolutely. And then they have the option to where now you need to VPN. So now you don't need to push because you just did it two hours ago, but now I'm going to ask you for your password. Right. And then right. now I need to access my prod. So now I need to go to the PAM. Now I'm going to ask you again for your push and your password. So I think a lot of the companies do have the tools in place. But again, it's a level of trust and a level of not having really good RBAC and some of these other basic best practices. They haven't activated it yet. Yeah. And we've had this discussions today at, at 1010 Data. We want to get to a more passwordless authentication, but we want to improve our overall identity next management best practices first before we have the trust in order to get to that level. On the other side of the question where how long I, I really think it depends on, on, on some of the integration and how quickly we can improve, the, again, the reliability, especially if you're looking to use the biometrics yep. and not just the hard token. 
Uh, I think their their reliability needs to to get better. I know Okta and some of these other competitors of theirs, they're coming out with agents in once every single endpoint type OS version for both workstations and servers have an agent. Uh, because the the capabilities are already integrated there for passwordless, I think it will come down more and more as companies experiment with it and learn to trust it. So listen, we're getting close to the end of the show. I got one question I ask every guest, which is what keeps you going in cyber? What gets you out of bed in the morning wanting to do it again? It's not boring. It's always challenging. I'm one of those guys that if I got good at riding a bike or Texas Hold'em or chest, I got bored and, and, and tackled something new, but I have never gotten bored with cyber. They're, they're, as soon as you event a new control, you know, the hacker figures out a way to get around it, right? So right. It, it's constant whack-a-mole, constant cat and mouse, but in a really fun way, right? Because I get to combine my passion for strategy and technology and helping people all rolled into one. Well, Durley Gutierrez, head of security at 1010 Data, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.